welcome to the podcast for St. Andrew's Community United Methodist Church, a loving, caring, overcoming community of faith where our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So Po Chi Chang was a student from Taiwan that attended East Central University. Po was not a believer in Christ, but he did hang around our campus ministry a lot, and he always had a lot of questions about Christian people. The question I remember Po asking the most frequently was this, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many churches? Why are there so many different types of Christian? In Taiwan, there's only one Buddhist, but in America, there are all these different types of Christians. Now, honestly, that's a fair question. Why are there so many different types of churches and so many different uh, practices of our faith? And whenever an unbeliever asks us that question, it really gives us the great opportunity to engage them in answering their question, but also to the deeper truth of what we believe and how it is we witness to our faith. And so it was that Poe always had this question, and I almost always gave him the same answer. Well, Poe, as Christian people, we all read the Bible but when we read the Bible, and the Bible's a big book, <laughs> when we read the Bible, we read it differently. We understand it differently. We interpret it differently. And churches are typically gatherings of people who believe the same kind of interpretation. For example, baptism. I always tell our students in confirmation that in 2,000 years of church history, Christians have never agreed about Baptism, whether it's baptism by water or baptism of the Holy Spirit, we believe those things are important, but we don't necessarily believe the same things about them. We typically have three questions about baptism. Who can be baptized? How must they be baptized? And how often can you be baptized? And we don't all agree on those three questions. Consider, if you will, Exhibit A, my good friend, funniest guy I know, Mike Frisbee. Yes, with a name like Frisbee, you have to have a good sense of humor. Mike was a teenager. He didn't go to church. His family did not go to church, but somehow or another, he agreed to go with our youth group on a trip we took for a week in the mountains of Colorado. There, in the midst of all that beauty, Mike began to hear the gospel in a way that he had never heard it before. And while we were on that trip, he made the decision that he would give his life to Christ. When we got back from our trip, Mike was baptized, became a member of our church. But when Mike became a young adult, he met and fell in love with Pam. And Pam was from a different Christian tradition than he was from, so they decided they would find their own church they found a church. They started going. Mike wanted to join. They asked him, have you been baptized? He said, yes, I have. And they said, well, tell us about that. And so he told them about that, and they said, oh, you haven't really been baptized. You can't join the church until you're really baptized. And so Mike did not join the church for a long time 
And finally, he joined the church, and we were having a lunch with some friends one day, and I said, oh, you joined the church? You remember now? He goes, yeah. I said, that means you took the plunge. And he gritted his teeth, and he said, yeah, I did it. I didn't like having to do it, but I did it. How would you like it? If you considered yourself to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ, but somebody told you, well, if you really want to be a Christian, there's one more thing you have to do. And if you don't do that, you're not really a Christian. I mean, how would you like it if someone said, oh, well, unless you're baptized in a river like Jesus was, then you can't really be considered a Christian. If you have been baptized in the Spirit, but you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian. Uh, how, how do you like it when people say, you're not really a Christian, you've checked off all the boxes except this one? And when you check off that box, then you can legitimately call yourself a follower of Christ. I suspect most of us would not respond very well to that. And yet it is something that confronts the church that God has created and continues to create. Now, if you're keeping score, then you're well aware that for the past three months, June, July, August, we have been in this series creating the church. Y'all probably didn't know we could preach a series that long, but that's what we've been doing for the last 13 Sundays. And it may please you to know this is the last one of this series. But before we can get to where I want us to be, let's remember where we've been. The church was started when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers. We read about that in Acts 2, that about 120 people that were following Jesus were gathered together in one place, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, and all who believed formed the church. That was the birthday of the church. And when the people that were around who were not believers in Jesus saw and heard what was happening, they thought, man, these people have been drinking. And Peter explains, no, this is what Joel said was going to happen. This is what the ancient prophets said. And by the time he got uh, through explaining it, and he said, this Lord who you crucified is both Messiah and Lord, the people want to know, then what do we have to do? What do we have to do to have this experience? And Peter says, turn from sin and turn to God and be baptized and you will be saved. And so it was that people turned from sin and people turned to God and about 3,000 of them were baptized in that day. And now as the church is born, it begins to grow rapidly. And those early believers had a high level of devotion. They were devoted to four things. The first thing they were devoted to was the teaching of the apostles. And the teaching of the apostles, those who had lived with Jesus, those who followed Jesus would tell them, this is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus did. This then is how we should live. The first thing was this high level of devotion to the apostles' teaching. And then the result was, well, actually there were three other devotions. They had a devotion to fellowship. We called it koinonia. And koinonia is when there's concern for and dedication to each other's highest good. Koinonia happens when there's healing where people are hurting. 
They were committed to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and they were committed to prayer. As a result of all that devotion then, they had a changed lifestyle. All of a sudden, they began to live lives more generously than they had before. They began to live lives more obediently than they had to because what they were trying to do, as they listened to the apostles, as they prayed, as they came together, they began to say things are going to be different in this new life that we have in Christ. We're going to align our lives with what Jesus said instead of the ways that we have always known. The Lord continued to add to their numbers. The numbers begin to multiply, but it's not all fun and games because now something drastic is going to happen. They're going to be persecuted, and persecution scatters the believers. They had all been in and around Jerusalem, but when persecution happens, they begin to go to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world that Jesus said that they should go to after they had received the Holy Spirit. In Samaria, and remember, Samaria, the Samaritans were considered half Jewish and half Gentile, half Jewish, half non-Jewish. And when it was found out that even these people could receive salvation, then the, the apostles came and they checked it out and they said, salvation has not just come to the Jews, it has come to the Gentiles as well. And this is when we start seeing again these explosive means of growth. But as the church began to scatter, as they moved away from the center of Jerusalem, spiritual imposters began to pop up. Now these spiritual imposters, if they were like Simon the sorcerer, it's easy to smoke those people out. It's easy to recognize them. But it was the others, the more subtle ones, that were harder to figure out. I mean, imagine if you will, if you can remember the time when suddenly your faith came alive to you in a way that it had never come alive before and you're excited and you're zealous and you're experiencing these growth, this, this growth and, and somebody who's more mature than you, somebody who's wiser than you says, oh, by the way, here's what you have to do. In your innocence, you're going to think they're right. In your innocence, in your hunger to really grow and be more like Jesus, you're going to think they're right and you're going to listen to what they say, even if they're an imposter. And so it is that in the midst of these imposters, we begin to see conflict arise in the church. In fact, we read in Acts 15, verse 1, this scripture. These imposters came into Antioch and said, Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. You hear that? You've checked off all the boxes except this one. And if you will check this box off, then you consider yourself a Christian. Well, the people that were preaching the gospel in Antioch were Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas began to argue with these other imposters, said, no, you don't have to come under the law of Moses. Truth be known, none of us could fulfill the law of Moses. How do you expect these people that have not been Jewish to suddenly follow a law that is foreign to them? And as they began to argue back and forth, guess who's in the middle? <laughs> All the spiritual converts. And they're confused. And there needs to be clarity. 
And so it is that Paul and Barnabas and some of the believers there in Antioch travel back to Jerusalem. They want to figure out what are we supposed to believe? What is supposed to be true? And they have the discussion, they make the decision, and here is the word they send back to Antioch. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So the question being answered in Antioch, the question being answered by the apostles is not who gets in the church. It's not a question of are Gentiles allowed in the church. They've already said, no, Gentiles can be Christian also. The question they're asking is, what must you do if you're going to be Christian? What must you believe? How should you live? Should you be circumcised or is there a different understanding of what you have to do? Now, again, you can imagine when you're saying, oh, you've checked all the boxes but this one, then there was <laughs> some trouble in there. And if you think that this event was unimportant, please know this is a watershed moment in the life of the church. In fact, of the verses we just read, it continues to shape the life of the church today. God created and continues to create the church, and God uses this as a time to really help us know what we are to do. And so the first thing I would point out to you is this. The church has structures of accountability. Now, this council happens about 15 years after Jesus has ascended. It's happened about 15 years after the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. So the church is about 15 years old. Doesn't it make sense that confusion would happen to a teenager? 
15 years old and they want to know what's going on and they want to know how then are we supposed to do these things and what we see is that when they had the question in Antioch they said we can't settle this by ourselves let's send some people to Jerusalem because the center of the church at that time is still in Jerusalem that's where the apostles are or as you read as the apostles scattered some stayed in Jerusalem but there were elders in the church people who had been wise for 15 years in helping people know what we believe and how we live and so it was that when they went to the apostles Paul and Barnabas went but they didn't go by themselves you can imagine how that works Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem they hang out they come back to Antioch yeah we were right nope that's not what they did they sent other believers to Antioch with them so they too could participate. And then it said, we're sending Paul and Barnabas and some of the apostles back to Antioch so it's not just Paul and Barnabas showing up saying, see, we told you we were right. No, the church had a system of accountability. And because of this, whenever we think of the church today, we think the church has system of accountability, but if you're thinking ahead of me you're going well yeah but you know those those apostles in Jerusalem they dead they've been dead a long time what do we do today well I would suggest to you that those apostles that started they began to impart to others what it means to be an apostle one that is sent out and the church, as the agent of Christ, has handed down apostolic authority to generation after generation after generation. The church is not without apostolic authority today. We're not without accountability today. And so whenever we think of our systems of accountability, we see those as gifts of the church through the apostles that continue to exist. But I also want to say this about accountability. When we think of accountability, a lot of times we think of that in a punitive sense. We think of accountability as, well, somebody messed up and somebody needs to be held accountable for this. You did this, and I'm going to hold you accountable until you make it right. That's how we tend to think about accountability. But I want us to think about accountability a little bit different in, in this setting. Think of it not as a punitive measure, but as something to help the church stay balanced in the world that we live in and how it is that we check each other and we hold each other accountable so that we stay in balance and don't go too far. And so what God has created is a system of accountability with those who are gifted to be apostles and this spiritual authority that is handed down from generation to generation, this spiritual authority helps us to determine what is right practice and to protect us from spiritual imposters. That's what was happening in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are apostles, but these imposters have worked against them to confuse things. And I believe that spiritual authority helps protect the church, helps protect those who are new to the faith, who are spiritual infants from being seduced away by those who are imposters. Now, again, part of the question is, how are we supposed to live? And these imposters were saying, well, you've got to keep the whole law of Moses, and that includes being circumcised. Circumcision 
in the Old Testament is what we would say is baptism in the New Testament. Therefore, the question, how should you be baptized? When should you be baptized? How many times should you be baptized? In our view, we say no one was really recircumcised. We didn't really see people signing up for that. Therefore, as a sign of the covenant, we don't rebaptize. But in this thought of protection from imposters, I said, we want to give you four requirements. The, you know, the, I mean, if, at the very least, the law of Moses had ten commandments, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're just going to give you four things. And they sound kind of odd. The first thing was, you cannot meet, eat, eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Now, I'm certain you can go to Crest or you can go to wherever you buy your groceries and you can find the gluten-free section, the sugar-free section, the lactose-free section. You are not going to find the idol-free section. It does not exist as nearly as I know. So it's a foreign concept to us, but here's why this is important. We know in Judaism when people sin, they offered sacrifices in order to remind them that they should not sin. And one of those sacrifices is what's called a whole burnt offering. You burned the entirety of the sacrificial animal. But in many pagan religions that also had sacrifice, they didn't sacrifice the whole animal. They just sacrificed part of it. And then they took the rest of the meat to the market and they sold it. In fact, usually the best meat in the market had been meat sacrificed to an idol. Well, when these early Christians see people buying this meat sacrificed to an idol, they would think, well, that person must be a pagan. But they're saying they're a Christian. And it was confusing. Therefore, to avoid the confusion, don't go to the idol free meat station. Just don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And then they went on with some other dietary stuff. They said, don't eat meat that has been strangled and don't consume blood. Actually, that is part of Jewish dietary laws. And they're just saying, because that can be confusing to people, just, just abstain from that. And then the fourth thing was abstain from sexual immorality. And beloved, let's be honest. That's one that if you stop and think about, you go, there must have been a whole lot of sexual immorality if they had to put that one in the list of four things. There must have been a lot of sexual immorality that was practiced. And they said, if you want a, people to see you're a Christian, don't participate in sexual immorality. And it defines what the standards of that are. And so, in other words, what they're saying is you've got spiritual authority and spiritual imposters and the people in the middle are confused. Let's clear the confusion by saying we don't do these things but they were very clear these things do not lead to salvation you can keep these four rules but it does not mean that it saves you you can indulge in these four things and it does not mean that you're not Christian but obviously there's some sin you need to deal with are y'all with me so far I mean, this is a watershed moment in the church because people are confused. Conflict has arisen. They've appealed to the apostles, and the apostles become protectors of the faith, trying to keep us in the boundaries of what is right for us to believe. 
And a lot of what they sent back to Antioch was, let's just end the confusion, don't do these things. Paul will even write in one of his, his letters, he said, so what is meat sacrificed to an idol? Meat sacrificed to an idol is meat sacrificed to nothing. So it's okay if you eat it, but abstain from it because it becomes a stumbling block to other people. And that's what they're trying to eliminate is things that we can do that cause others to stumble. It reminds me of a story of old Joe. Y'all probably don't know old Joe, but you might know somebody like him. Once a week, old Joe would go to the bar and he would order three beers. And after he had done this a few times, a bartender got to know him a little bit and he said, old Joe, he said, uh, if you would just order these beers one at a time, they would always be cold and fresh when I bring them to you. And old Joe said, well, he goes, here's why I do this. He goes, my brothers and I are very close, but we don't ever get to see each other because we're, we're just too far apart in where we live. And so we made an agreement that once a week at this time, we would all go to a bar and we would all order three beers so we could drink a beer together even when we can't be together. So that's why I order all three beers at once. The bartender thought that made sense, and he gets to know old Joe a little better. Every week, Joe comes in, orders three beers, I bring him three beers, and, you know, he has a beer with his brothers. Then one day, Joe comes into the bar, and the bartender says, hey, Joe, do you want the usual? And Joe says, no, I only need two beers today. You can do the math, and you kind of see what's going on, and the bartender comes up with two beers, and he sets them down. He said, Joe, I'm sorry for your loss. These are on the house. And Joe goes, oh, no, 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 that's not what this is about. He goes, I became a Christian, and I can't drink anymore. <laughs> but it doesn't stop my brothers from drinking. <laughs> that's all y'all are going to remember about this sermon. I already know that right now. I mean, we, we find ourselves in the place where, you know, this is the reputation Christians get. It's all about what you can't do. You can't eat meat sacrificed to idol. You can't eat meat that has been strangled. You can't consume blood. You can't be sexually immoral. You know, and in the case of old Joe, we would look at him and say, aren't we glad we're Methodists? Do not give me an amen for that. But, but, but this is when the church gets the reputation, at least this is my belief, when the church gets the reputation that if you're a Christian, you can't do these things. If you're a Christian, you can't dance. Not that you are a bad dancer. You just are not supposed to dance. I grew up in the Methodist church. You know what my response to that is? Everybody cut, everybody cut. Everybody cut, foot loose. <laughs> that's my answer to that I grew up in a church where we held dances all our friends that went to churches that couldn't came <laughs> can't dance you can't drink you can't smoke you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that and the church gets a reputation based on what we can't do and spiritual authority sometimes says just don't do these things because it causes people to stumble don't do these things because it's confusing. And in the church, we want to live in such a way that we are very clear about what it means to follow after Christ. And so before they sent this letter, before they sent that back to Antioch, the apostles had had this discussion over one thing, and, and we didn't get to read a very important verse for how they concluded the matter before they wrote the letter, but we would have read this if we had gone back and read verse 11 in chapter 15. 
We believe we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Amen? That's a good word. Because at this point, what we see is the consistency of the message that God continues to send through the apostles. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching that the only thing necessary for salvation is to turn from sin and turn to God because it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings us salvation. And that, friends, is how we should approach whenever we have disagreements of faith. I mean, we understand that people interpret the Bible differently and they gather together with like-minded people and they form a church. And we understand that churches have practices and some of those practices we agree with and some we disagree with. The other side of that coin is some practices we have other Christians agree with and some practices other Christians disagree with. Honestly, we don't even agree on what we do here, but we agree that it's important. And we actually would all say that whenever we come to the Lord's table, it is a means of grace. It is a way that we remember. It is a way that we connect with the undeserved grace which brings us salvation. And so the invitation that we give in the name of Christ is that all who truly and earnestly repent of your sin and you intend to lead a new life following the ways of God, then draw near by faith and receive this sacrament to yourself. All are welcome. You don't have to be a member of our church to come. You don't have to be a member of any church. But we ask that when you come, you would cup your hands, and someone's going to give you a piece of bread, and you'll dip the tip of that in your cup. As you come, if you'll exit the aisle to your left and return by the aisle to your right, that will help us to have a smooth way of receiving communion. But as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I invite you as you're able to please stand, and let's join together in affirming our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.